This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I practice law in Salem, Massachusetts. And I've been a lawyer for many years representing originally the insurance industry and for the last 20 or so years I've been representing injured workers and their families primarily in workers' compensation-related issues. And if you've listened to Workers' Comp Matters in the past, you know we concentrate on topics related to workers' compensation And we have done shows on latex allergies, sick buildings, carpal tunnel injuries. But today we are introducing a new topic. We're going to discuss cardiac injury claims in the workplace and uh, also uh, dealing with medical issues of causation and liability for the employer and workers' compensation insurer for heart attacks or other cardiac issues. At this time, I'd like to introduce our guest. He is Dr. Julian Oresti. He is a cardiologist from Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston. Dr. Oresti is Director of Quality Assurance and Improvement at the Cardiovascular uh, Institute at Beth Israel Deaconess. He is an Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he has served as an expert witness evaluating claims both for the defense and the plaintiff uh, in personal injury and workers' compensation cases for many years. Dr. Resty, welcome to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're glad to have you. I'd like to begin by having you discuss really the anatomy of the heart and how it might relate to issues involving litigation, primarily workers' compensation. Well, most of the issues really revolve about coronary disease. Uh, I would say that's the vast majority. Uh, Valve disease is much less uh, an issue with regard to workers' compensation. And with regard to coronary disease, it's important to separate out two separate factors, one of which is the development of coronary disease, which occurs over a period of time in many of us. And in fact, in those of us in the Medicare age group, they're probably the majority who have some coronary disease, but who do not have uh, an effect of it. That is, the coronary disease is still asymptomatic and not yet critical. And then the second part of this is the coronary disease going on to an acute event, such as an acute myocardial infarction. And those are two separate parts which need to be kept in mind in evaluating workers' compensation cases. All right. Let's let's try to take an example, a typical case that might come into my office. I've got a gentleman, let's say uh, 55 years of age. He's been a construction worker or a laborer for all of his work life maybe was or still is a smoker and has the usual uh, risk factors associated uh, with somebody in his mid-50s, perhaps uh, with uh, some elevated blood pressure and uh, cholesterol levels, but uh, does a heavy job. And one day, uh, maybe it's a hot summer day, he's lifting some heavy lumber and he doesn't feel well. He sort of works out the day, goes home, doesn't feel well after dinner, probably doesn't eat much, and then has some really tight burning pressure in his chest and the ambulance is called and he goes to the hospital and he's diagnosed as having a myocardial infarct or a heart attack. And he comes to see me after uh, coming out of the hospital and says, uh, my work caused my heart attack. And I get the records or I send him to a physician such as yourself and the insurance company engages a physician. What, what do you do? Let's say you're examining him for the insurance company. 
How do you how do you look at that case and provide an opinion whether there is or is not a connection to the work he did that day and the reasons he went into the hospital? Well, it's important to go over the multiple risk factors for the development of coronary artery disease. Now, let's separate that out from the acute myocardial infarction. So this is the basic underpinning of what happened at work. That is, he had coronary disease and then it became symptomatic. And the risk factors for developing coronary artery disease are male sex. Males are more likely to get it than females. And generally, males get an equivalent level of coronary disease at about 10 years less than a female. So a 55-year-old male has about the same risk as a 65-year-old female. The second is family history. If there is a family history of premature coronary disease, which we would generally uh, indicate that there is a first-order relative, parent, sibling, child who had coronary disease before the age of 60. Third factor is diabetes. Fourth is smoking. Fifth is hypertension. And sixth is lipid level. And then there are some others that are not often measured, like high-sensitivity CRP and homocysteine. But I would say, taking the, the more common ones, we look at the background, and that tells us what this patient's risk is of having coronary disease. Now, going to the next step, what's the risk of having an acute myocardial infarction? That is, when you have this asymptomatic coronary disease and have not yet had a problem with it, What's the next step? Well, the next step is there is an event that occurs that results in what's called plaque rupture. The, the cholesterol in the coronary artery is covered by a lining of the vessel wall that protects the heart from, from this plaque from causing a clot formation. And the inciting event for the development of the acute myocardial infarction can be severe emotional stress, Everyone knows about the problem of someone having a very severe emotional event that's resulted in a heart attack. It could be severe physical effort. Everybody knows that there are times when extremely severe physical effort causes it. But in addition, it can happen without either of those. That is, one can wake up in the middle of the night with a heart attack. That is, can happen without the extra stresses. So having the risk factors puts you at risk, but having an event that can be closely associated with the start of the symptoms of a heart attack, in my view, represent a work-related injury. So if you're lifting something heavy, and at that time, or immediately thereafter, literally within minutes, you have this sensation that is interpreted as coming from your heart, this is a work-related injury engrafted on someone with a propensity to develop this. Okay, so, and uh, I think we've all seen the, the history that is either documented in the record, and sometimes that is not an accurate account of what really happened, and the history that I get from the client uh, is paramount. And when you say immediately after, so let's say Jack is lifting a 75-pound bundle of lumber, uh, and you said almost immediately, are we talking... An hour or less, two minutes or less, Where what is the parameters of what immediately would be? No, an hour or less is reasonable. What happens is we, what we suppose occurs, the pathophysiology of this, is, that is the way this occurs, is that during the lifting, he puts a great deal of strain on the heart, that is blood pressure goes up markedly, the coronary artery then ruptures, that is the covering of this plaque, this cholesterol plaque, 
uh, ruptures and it is exposed then to the bloodstream, which begins to lay down clot. It may not happen immediately. It may happen within an hour or so. And that still is a work-related injury. I mean, I think we can agree, even in your role as a, a defense expert, that if somebody is actually on the job site lifting something, clutches his chest and collapses and is either dead or seriously impaired from a, an MI, it's this little wiggle room there for an insurer to get out of it. I mean, the, the, the problem that I see is when the person keeps on working, and let's talk about what those clinical manifestations, what those symptoms could be. Normally, you, as a layman, I would think, crushing chest pain, left arm pain, jaw pain. More and more of clients over the years have come to me, and those initial symptoms have not been that, but they just didn't feel well. Indigestion, burning sensation. They think they may have ate something wrong, or they pop a Tums or an antacid. Um, tell me about what those symptoms mean. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting that there are many patients who will not describe it as pain at all. And so we tend not to use the word pain. You'll notice that many physicians use the word discomfort, meaning a difference from your baseline state. In some cases, it's only shortness of breath. In some cases, it's burning. In some cases, it's a tightness. And people will say it's as if there's a band around my chest. Some describe it as a heaviness. It's as if something is sitting on my chest. You know, the... the uh, um, the term that we often hear from the lay public is that it was like an elephant's on my chest. Something very heavy is there. Um, so it's very common for there to be symptoms that are atypical. But one of the clues that uh, this is coming from your heart is if this is a patient who has had in the past a heart attack or in the past has had angina, that is, has had symptoms of decreased oxygen to the heart muscle with effort, we then look to that as his kind of angina discomfort. It's his warning signal. And these are patients that will say, well, I'm, all, I'm fine as long as I'm not rushing to catch an airplane you know, with my luggage. And then I get this feeling, and it feels sort of like indigestion or something, and I stop, and in a minute or two it goes away. That's an immediate sign to us that this discomfort that comes on with effort especially effort on a cold, windy day outdoors, especially effort that is more severe than his usual, that goes away within minutes of resting or goes away literally within 30 seconds to a minute of taking a nitroglycerin. This is his angina equivalent. And it may be different for different people, but if a patient says, when I rush up a hill, I don't get pain. I get this feeling in my jaw that there's an ache there. That's his angina equivalent. That may be what he feels when he has his heart attack, only in a much more severe manner. Now, is there a way that a physician or a lab can actually pinpoint uh, the time frame that a, a myocardial infarct or an MI begins? To some degree, yes, but not precisely. So the blood tests that we look for that tell us that a heart attack has occurred um, tend to rise within hours. So within four or six hours, we'll begin to see a rise in the blood tests, and they tend to peak at somewhere around 12, uh, somewhere around 24 hours or so. And uh, then we'll fall off fairly rapidly for some of the tests and we'll stay elevated for others for several days. So the troponin uh, tends to stay elevated for several days. The CK or CKMB 
uh, tends to stay elevated for just a shorter time for a peak in about one day and then stay elevated for a couple of days afterwards. Now, are these what are known as serial enzyme studies? These are the serial enzyme studies, and these are the studies that are done as the patient comes into medical care. So if he's had his chest pain an hour before, all these enzyme studies will be negative. They should be negative. If they are positive, it's that something has happened before he had his heart attack. He's beginning to have some trouble earlier on. So let's get back to my uh, prospective client, Joe, who had come in to me and said that uh, in the afternoon he felt different, discomfort, call it what you will. Finished out the day somewhat lethargic, went home, and then 8 p.m. has the the crushing sensation in his chest. He's taken to hospital, and they diagnose him as being in the throes of an acute myocardial infarct. What will the serial enzymes tell me as his lawyer uh, to work with a consulting doctor or his treating doctor to pinpoint the work he was doing six hours earlier as being the significant contributing cause for that event? Yes, what you can say is that when 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 he came into the medical care system, Uh, which was, let's say, within an hour of his saying that his symptoms got much worse at home. If his enzymes were elevated, then something had happened several hours earlier, six, eight hours earlier. And then you can pinpoint and say, this elevation was not from what just happened now. It's from something that happened earlier. And so you can begin to set up a timeline with regard to when the injury occurred by looking at that. The electrocardiogram is helpful to tell you that you're in the midst of an acute infarction, but doesn't give you a time uh, line that's useful. As time goes on, the electrocardiogram changes from the acute changes to the changes with healing, but these are changes that take place over several days. Okay, so let's take this client one step further, and we are successful as his lawyer in convincing the insurance company or convincing the workers' compensation board that indeed the work he was doing that afternoon was the responsible uh, event that triggered this acute myocardial infarct, landed him in the hospital, and now is causing him to be unable to work as a laborer, at least during a recovery phase. And during the course of his hospitalization, his physician, as any competent doctor will do, is look at what is the level of his underlying cardiovascular disease, a cardiac catheterization is done, and he's got multi-vessel occlusions in several arteries, and he is now a candidate for either a cardiac bypass or angioplasty or some other type of um, uh, non-surgical treatment. As a either defense expert or a plaintiff's expert in this case, where do you draw the line between the responsibility of the workers' comp carrier uh, being responsible for that next course of treatment to correct the underlying disorder. In other words, does the MI alter the physiology of the heart to make the compensation insurer now responsible for a surgical or non-surgical treatment that otherwise may not have occurred for years or decades later? Yes, it may or may not. And so that depends entirely on the amount of damage that was sustained at the time of this initial event. If there was major damage to the heart, then yes, that makes a very big difference with regard to his outlook. So if he comes into medical care at a time when relatively little damage has occurred and he undergoes revascularization in one form or another, bypass stent or, um, or angioplasty, and this preserves his myocardial function, preserves heart muscle so that he does not sustain any damage, 
then I would say that the amount of coronary disease he has and his future is more related to his risk factors than it is to what happened at work because the event at work actually was aborted with regard to its full effect. That is, the infarction never went on to what it was going to do didn't eventually. Kill him. Didn't kill him and didn't cause major damage. And so then we're talking about his underlying risk factors. And you have to say that given his underlying risk factors, which up to that point may or may not have been corrected in part or fully, that he was sure going to have something happen sometime in the future. This had only accelerated when it was going to occur. On the other hand, if he had major damage to his heart, then that's made a major difference in his outlook, and that is clearly related to the work-related event and clearly has a major effect on his survival and his ability to work. And that, that gets us to the next issue that those of us as lawyers for uh, uh, workers who have the misfortune of suffering a work-related myocardial infarct only to reveal this underlying coronary disease, they are then given a set of work restrictions, usually weight and other type of restrictions that may put them out of uh, working in their normal occupation. Not so much because of the effects of the myocardial infarct, but because of the discovery that there has been already an episode and there's some underlying disease process. That gets into the advocacy role of, of the lawyer, his or her expert, and the defense expert in relating that ongoing disability to this event. And what are the uh, factors that you would look for as somebody who might be helping me as a plaintiff or a claimant in establishing that the work insurer should be responsible for this ongoing, if not permanent, impairment and inability to do heavy work? Yeah, you know, once again, that depends on how things have changed as a consequence of the infarction that has occurred and as a consequence of the infarction that has occurred subsequent to the treatment that has been applied. If the treatment that has been applied really aborts the full effect of the infarction to a major degree, then I think it's difficult to ascribe his future care to this event because the event has largely been abrogated by the treatment that was applied. On the other hand, if there is a major problem with rhythm, that is, he sustains now a dangerous arrhythmia, which he did not have before the infarction, that's clearly related to the event itself, to the infarction. This is post-infarction arrhythmias, which can be extremely dangerous and fatal. That, I think, has to be related to the inciting event to the work-related injury. If there is a major problem with heart failure that he did not have before because of the amount of myocardium, the amount of muscle that was damaged, that's clearly related. If these things are aborted by the treatment, then one has to say this is mostly his underlying risk factors. Let's get back to the um, initial treatment record, usually a hospital emergency room record and an inpatient uh, record uh, following um, the hypothetical situation I had given you earlier. Aside from the history that is given either by the patient or a family member who brings the patient in, and aside from the blood work of the serial enzyme studies, is there anything else in that record that a lawyer or a medical consultant for a lawyer should look to in order to build or defend a claim against uh, full workers' compensation benefits? We need to look at his past history. That is, is there a history in the past of anything that would suggest that he was having episodes of angina which neither he nor his treating physician had recognized 
as intermittent episodes of decreased oxygenation of part of the heart muscle. And this is not uncommon because patients may interpret it as nothing really significant, especially men who tend to to minimize their symptoms. It's sort of part of being a man, I guess. Um, And especially if these are rare, it's not at all uncommon for a patient to say to me before he's had his heart attack, you know, I remember three years ago I was rushing in the airport with my suitcase and I had this terrible feeling in my chest and I had to stop to wait for it to go and it went away and it never occurred again until I had this heart attack several years later. And so this tells you that he had symptomatic uh, coronary disease, may never have reported it to anybody, but this is a hint to us that the coronary disease was significant even then. Okay, right now we're going to take a quick break and come back with Case of the Day as we put Dr. Oresti to the test. We'll be right back. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. We hope you listen to one of our brand new shows here on the Legal Talk Network, In-House Legal, with attorney Paul Boyton, experienced in all things in-house. If you're interested in the top issues, news, and trends inside the corporate legal department, you'll want to listen to In-House Legal. Starts January 12th. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen now, download the show, or even better, subscribe to the RSS feed. It's free. We're proud to tell you about a special legal podcast series called Legal Tips from the ABA Tort Trial and Insurance Practice section. It's all about creative approaches to old problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. You'll hear about the TIPS Leadership Academy, diversity initiatives, and plans for the TIPS 2009 annual meeting. Legal Tips starts in February, right here on the Legal Talk Network and the American Bar Association websites. Okay, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where with me today is uh, Dr. Julian Oresti, cardiologist from Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston. And we're going to change gears a bit, and we're going to put Dr. Oresti to the test in our Case of the Day feature. And, uh, doctor, the case today that I want to discuss with you comes from the state of Illinois, and it involves an intoxicated worker, Mr. Saffold, who worked on a large machine for a machine company, and on the date of his accident, he had consumed a large amount of alcohol well over the legal limit for intoxication. He had just started his shift when the glove he was wearing caught on a screw protruding from the machine. It brought his arm into the machine and caused a below-elbow amputation. The insurance company denied the claim based upon his drunken state. At the hearing before the Illinois Workers' Comp Commission, There was evidence that Saffold was a highly functioning alcoholic, that he came to work every day in that state and was able and had been able to successfully operate the machinery. The protruding screw had just been put on the machine, and it was that new screw that caused uh, it to catch on his glove, drew his arm into the machine, and caused the amputation. Do you think he should be entitled to workers' compensation benefits? How do you think the court ruled? Um. Well, I can't tell you how the court ruled because who knows how 12 people are going to judge something. But I can tell you that my view is that if he was a highly functioning alcoholic, that is, he came to work every day, did his job in a satisfactory and credible manner, then I would say that this protruding screw, clearly the 
cause of the accident, whether he was sober or not, uh, was the responsibility of the employer and that he, it should have been considered a, a compensable workman injury. Well, you hit it right on the head. The actual finding of the court was exactly as you put it, that uh, based on his lifelong use of alcohol, his lack of prior work injuries, his noted alertness and coherence, uh, that it was, the, in fact, the screw in the glove, incidents of the employment that caused the injury and his intoxication while present was not a contributing factor in any way. So uh, thank you for... Uh, affirming what the courts uh, did and what I thought is a proper result in that particular case. We want to get back a little bit before we conclude uh, to you um, in our discussion, Doctor. You mentioned and we covered the role of physical exertion and its uh, role in causing uh, or aggravating an underlying cardiac condition. And earlier you mentioned that an extreme emotional upset uh, also, um, and we all can think of a situation where somebody is uh, suddenly frightened and, and drops dead or, or clutches his or her chest and goes down. I've had clients come into me that work in highly stressful jobs day in and day out. And what is your opinion or what can you uh, tell us about the role of chronic emotional stress and the cause or aggravation of underlying coronary artery disease to produce, for example, let's say a myocardial infarct? Well, this is often a question that's raised with me when patients have had a heart attack and he comes in with his wife and the wife always says the same thing. My God, he's under such stress. He's running this company. Uh, it's not always doing well. He has to yell at employees. Uh, we have to make him stop that. And he says to his wife, oh, honey, cut it out. I can handle this okay. Um, look, chronic stress is not good for anybody. But I think the fundamental issue here is does chronic stress cause coronary disease? And this is a complicated issue. When one looks at chronic stress, for instance, there was a evaluation of bosses and workers in a company, that is people who were white collar and those who were blue collar in a company, to determine the stress level in various ways. Psychologists did this. And it turned out that the boss who has boat payments to make is at about the same stress level as the poor blue-collar worker who's trying to make the rent on his house and may have enough money to buy food for everybody. Um, so it's hard to equate stress levels with uh, coronary disease. What we can equate is an extreme of stress with a myocardial infarction. But does high stress produce coronary disease? Well, maybe, maybe not, but there's no proof that that is true. And it's very hard to measure. I think there's hardly any of us that don't live in a somewhat stressful environment, at least from time to time. Just driving home from work can be stressful. So the chronic effect of stress on coronary disease, I think, is unproven. Okay, we've talked, and before we close, I just want to uh, ask you one more area. We've talked primarily about uh, work efforts in work, physical or uh, emotional uh, efforts or exertions, and uh, the development of a, a myocardial infarct. What other cardiac conditions might be implicated in workers' compensation settings, uh, atrial fibrillation or some other types of um, diseases or, or problems in the heart that might be caused or significantly aggravated by work other than a heart attack? Yeah, there are rhythm problems that may occur at work, and so uh, atrial fibrillation is one of them. And are there conditions at work that might 
bring out atrial fibrillation? Well, yes, there are. Here's one place where if you are under stress, you may be more likely to have an episode of atrial fibrillation. But atrial fibrillation in itself is not a malignant rhythm. The danger of atrial fibrillation is if it persists for more than a couple of days, you can form a clot inside the heart and that can travel. Uh, And if it travels to the brain, you'll have a stroke. So this may occur in people who have a risk of developing atrial fibrillation and there are various risk factors that we can review. The second thing is there are problems with heart muscle called cardiomyopathy, which may or may not be recognized by the patient. It may be asymptomatic. And here again, this is a condition in which there is some risk. Uh, It brings to mind uh, young athletes, for instance, who have a sudden death at the time of severe exertion, a young athlete who plays basketball or football or or baseball and suddenly has severe exertion and drops. Uh, And these very often are young athletes who have what's called a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which puts them at risk of sudden death from an arrhythmia, especially during a time of severe exertion. And that would be an exertion-related sudden death, related not to coronary disease, their coronaries are often completely normal, but related to the heart muscle problem and uh, to the heart muscle not meeting the needs of the body at the time of severe exertion. And, and if, we are, had, if we had one of those cases, not necessarily an athlete, but also somebody exerting in the workplace with that type of condition, again, the history is of paramount importance. What was that person doing at the time symptoms occurred? Right, right. And there, what you have to say is he's got a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. He's at risk of this happening sometime in the intermediate future, and the death occurred at the time of heavy exertion. It was work-related. Well, doctor, thank you very much. Our time is just about up. It was a pleasure having you here. We uh, enjoyed this conversation very much. Uh, We hope you'll join us for another Workers' Comp Matters show. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. Hope you go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Cop Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.